0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and your host for today's discussion. One of the newest additions to the War Room has been the Dusty Shelves series, which encourages contributors to reflect on books that have been influential in their personal development or within their disciplines as a whole designed to encourage scholars to step back from the sometimes overwhelming flood of new materials to reflect on their own intellectual inspirations and on the works and ideas that, for better or worse, continue to influence their fields of study. Our guests today are the editors of The Dusty Shelves, Dr. Tom Braschino and Colonel John Klug, both faculty members in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations here at the U.S. Army War College to talk about the program's goals and maybe even to blow some dust off their own recommended readings. So, Tom, what's the point of the Dusty Shelves?
2: So, uh, Dusty Shelves, we should start by saying it's not a new thing exactly. It's been here for a while, uh, but it has been focused in the past. We've had it on uh, old documents uh, things primarily you can find in the Army Heritage and Education Center uh, here at Carlisle Barracks. Uh, but we wanted to to open the aperture a little bit and make it a, a broader thing. And so I started with this, and, and I know the guys at AHEC are mad about, that's the Army Heritage and Education Center, are mad about us calling, calling it Dusty Shelves, and I agree with them. I don't really like the name Dusty Shelves. The archivists don't like it because... As a matter of business, none of their shelves are dusty. They're
1: definitely not dusty. They, so they get
2: very mad about us calling it that, uh for for one thing. But on the other hand, some of these books have gotten dust gathered on them and, and old old books, old documents, uh some things that are out there that we've forgotten about. So we've widened this out. And I don't like the name because of this idea of it being antiquarianism. That we have these old books and you have them because they look neat on a shelf, but they there's not much of value in them because time has passed them by. And I think what we find is that that's not true. There's a lot of great stuff out there. If you go back and look at it uh, again, you know, we, uh, we reinvent wheels all the time. It's, 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 our, it's like the uh, Army's um, pastime. It's his favorite sport to play is, is re- uh, reinventing, reinventing wheels and the old wheels still roll. So I think that's, that's a problem. And, and so one of the things we've, we're trying to do is encourage people, and we want contributions and stuff, to start talking about older books that they can't believe, older readings, older things that, that are, are lost or were never really well-known, that really should have been. And so that's the emphasis on it. Uh, this happens a lot. Um, if I'm in the habit of making fun of, of titles, uh, one of the titles I wanted to make fun of is this one, A Better Piece, uh, which comes from, from uh, V.H. Liddell Hart. Uh, now, I would say it comes from his book, Strategy, although if you know Liddell Hart at all, you know that he... Uh, nobody was a master of self-plagiarizing as much as, as Liddell so Hart. if It's
1: from one of his books. It's from all of his books.
2: That's, that's correct. So uh, you see this, including the phrase "better peace." In it is in "In Strategy" in two places, exactly the same. About twenty, about fifteen pages apart in the book, he uses the exact same wording to talk about uh, the, the phrase "a better peace." That the object of war is a better peace, um, and I think you know Liddell Hart's strategy is a good one to start with. It, it could be an example of something we look at because. If you actually look at the book strategy, the better piece part, and I, I think came onto the first page. It's on, and in one of the editions I have is page three fifty one of the book, and it's in the section we like to use, which is his theory of, of strategy overall that he that he talks about in the latter part of the book. That's the last forty pages of a of a four hundred page book uh, that he talks about this, and and the problem with that is that the first you know the first uh, three hundred plus pages of the book in the later editions are. Problematic
1: would be a way of describing them. Problematic is a is a very good academic word. In other words, what you're saying is the first 300 pages of the book are have a lot of stuff in them that is wrong.
2: Well, it's um, put it this way: as a historian, uh, Liddell Hart tortures history pretty bad to make it uh, to compel it to, <laughs> to to agree with his thesis, which is that everything in warfare should be done through an indirect approach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, including he he makes the case for World War II uh, in the latter part of the book, which is uh bizarre because it's pretty hard to, to you know treat you know, d day and the aftermath or which you know the campaigns or the, the soviet campaigns on the on the eastern front uh or the dropping of the atomic bomb as atomic bombs as indirect indirect those seem pretty direct to me uh so you know that that's a a problematic thing, so we could maybe question whether or not we should be using a theory that is in part derived from a, a pretty tortured bad history. Mm-hmm. So, uh, not to say that that there's, I think there's great value in that latter part of the book, but it's it's one that's worth revisiting, and it would be interesting if somebody were to go back and say, "Hey, what are the, some of the problems with Little Heart?"
1: Well, and I think that's something to consider with uh, with any book that at the time was considered to be cutting edge, is to realize that the the cutting edge gets a little dull, or perhaps we've uh, we've sharpened things a little differently. In addition to Little Heart, John, what other books are out there that the Uh, dusty shelves to have either commissioned or are interested in including in the series?
0: Well, I think uh, one of them is from naval history, from uh, the study there is Mahan. So many people are familiar with one book, The Influence of Sea Power on History, but Mahan wrote a whole series of of books, and uh, one of them that comes to mind for things that I've been working on is Naval Administration and Warfare. So it it shows uh, a bit of the change in his thoughts. And one of the things that he talks about is uh, sea power being noiseless, steady, and exhausting. Sounds
1: like historical research.
0: Yes, fair (laughs) enough, for those of us who are rowing in that area. Uh, The other thing, though, is uh, a lot of times people point to Corbett as being somehow an opposite or... Uh, from Mahan but if you look at Corbett's work again he is another author who's written several different works and we only focus on some principles we don't look at some of the other works that he's done and one of those I think that people would benefit from looking at is uh, England in the Seven Years War because he really looks at naval warfare and strategy as a larger system and we talk about systems thinking here quite a bit and we're talking about, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, when we're talking about Mahan and Corbett, both of them thinking in that way already.
1: Mm-hmm. Tom, uh, is, it, uh, is it better to write a review of a of a book that is still good and useful in the way that it initially was? Or is it better to, like you talk about Little Heart, to, to re-examine or to use another if, since you use the word problematic if I use the other academic buzzword and say deconstruct a oh. book that uh, that people uh, have have thought is influential but may may need to be looked at differently
2: Well I think there's I think the answer is both uh-huh. I, I think that's the answer so so we have the ones that are maybe books that are we consider classics that maybe need to be taken down a peg mm-hmm. or two or ten <laughs> or <laughs> discarded altogether. Yeah, uh, so we'll have some of that. That's going to come out in this series, uh, and I think the the other one is old classics um, that have been forgotten. There's stuff like mm-hmm. that. So you know, you have Mahan has a series of books that were as influential as influence as John points out, and and we should look at some of those. Uh, so there's those books um, uh, that that have wrongfully been forgotten. I think, uh, and there's a lot of them. Uh, you, you know, you know your your army equivalent of uh, Mahan and Corbett is is always Clausewitz and Jomini. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are, are both fine although again we could probably read the whole things instead of just talking about pieces parts of them which we usually do. Uh, but but also books that uh, were highly influential, you know, if, if I'm doing World War 1 era stuff right now and pre-World War 1, you know, end of the uh, 19th century, there's a, a ton of books, classics that were really good that have just been lost. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, Colmar Vondergold's Nation at Arms is, is one that was highly influential on a lot of these guys. Uh, much, you know, much more directly than you'd see somebody like Jomini and Clausewitz. Uh, so those are really good ones that we could talk about and go back and say, hey, is it worth looking at these again? Why is it that, that we thought that these were important back in the day? And, and maybe they still are. Um, and I'm sticking to military history, but I know that uh, some of the people I've talked to about making contributions have brought up diplomatic uh, history books mm-hmm. or... or both by historians or by actors at the time, so uh, William Langer is one that I've, I've heard you know, has been brought up. Uh, I think you could make the case that you know, a lot of people have kind of forgotten about E. H. Carr. There's mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. one that would mm-hmm. be a, a really Im- Im- important one that we could come back into and, and like to see. Uh, and and again, this is just sort of within our within the heads that are in this room, the three heads that are in this room right now. We could probably come up with a whole list of them when you throw this out there, the, the feedback I've gotten already has been great. I mean, people bringing up Hans Delbrook and, and others, you know, there's all these ones out here that probably need to be looked at again uh, and, and brought out. And I think that they can be, be pretty helpful and, and, you know, give an entree back. And the other thing that's great in this, in this digital era that we have now is especially some of these old ones, you know, they're all public domain.
1: You know, True. For the, the older books. You don't have to buy yeah.
2: the thing. You can just go to Google books and, and read it online. If you want, you peruse it, you go to Hathi trust and, and look at those things. So there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that's that's really interesting, and I think those are all all good ones.
1: Um, I mean, I think one of the for everybody who's gone to graduate school knows that you spend you're given a long list of book titles, and then the challenge is to figure out every title and boil it down to a couple of sentences that you can mention in your orals to suggest to your uh, examiners that you've actually seen those books, and and uh, sometimes well. I won't say I won't speak for anybody in this room except myself, but let's just say that we haven't always read all of those books as closely as they could be read.
2: Well, and there's that other issue too of, of books that are uh, that you might have read for within your field, uh, but didn't read it in terms of thinking in in terms of national security issues or military affairs, mm-hmm. and then you go back and look at them again and realize they have a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. Uh so you know I, I could sort of stick with the progressive era and do right you know William Appelman Williams mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. that I, that somebody brought up um who 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 wrote about foreign policy american foreign policy I think the tragedy of american foreign policy I think is the, yep. the, the name of the that book right. and and that's a that's one that you know some people read as part of a you know, seeing an example of a progressive type of story and a new left type of story mm-hmm. and critiquing american foreign policy that uh, in a in a way that uh, isn't quite as a uh, uh, Cheap as a lot of the critiques of, of mm. you know, American foreign policy have, have seemed to become mm-hmm. you know, sort of trite and wrote. He's actually saying some stuff that's, that's a little bit interesting, a little bit different perspective. Right. Uh, so you got people like that who are, who are interesting. It might be worth going back into, uh, you know, Eric Goldman writing about the, the Progressive Era mm-hmm. is one that you don't see. Richard Hofstadter.
1: I mean, it, uh, it is interesting, right? Because a book a book can go from being a secondary source when it was written to becoming a primary source about the era in which it's written.
2: Absolutely, and uh-huh. that, that's another. Perspective, and you can mm-hmm. say, okay, you know how they critiqued foreign policy, or how they uh, amplified, you know. So, uh, someone like Samuel Flag Bemis, mm-hmm. right at the time, mm-hmm. his his reputation is is great. You know, he was a a fan of American foreign policy, and you don't see a lot of that, uh, you know, so much so that his nickname was you know, Samuel it was uh, Wave the Flag Bemis, was what <laughs> they called him, which was always a good one. But his but his his two volumes on John Quincy Adams, for example, mm-hmm. are as good a history of early American foreign policies you'll ever find, right? And they're in it, they're sort of buried in a biography. So if you're interested in John Quincy Adams, you get a great John Quincy Adams biography, but then you also get this amazing review of the early American foreign policy that I, I think would be valuable to people to understand the sort of foundational aspects mm-hmm. of American foreign policy and, and the ways that it hasn't really changed as much as we sometimes think. Right. Well, and if it has, why? Why is it and you know, is that a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Those are all the things that we introduce by looking at these older uh, older books.
1: Right. So John, where are we uh, as of as of right now this afternoon? Um, are there uh, uh, do, are there any any works coming up or that have been uh, that have been um, uh, commissioned that we can uh, we can subtweet any writers out there so that they can turn in their review on time? <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, From I I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, th- Well, whether or not people th- the other thing about this remember is we're talking about a thousand words. Mm-hmm in that range, you yeah. know, less than 1800. That's right. our, that's our, uh, that's our war room standard. So this isn't that, that, uh, hard of a, of a task, I think. So I, my call to people is, and for those people who have suggested stuff and for those who are thinking about it, you know, you know, throw something up against the wall. We'll see what sticks, mm. you know? And I think we're, we're, we're pretty open to a lot of stuff and we really do want an, an interesting variety of things. And we just can't encourage people enough to to send stuff in, because our first one, for example, mm-hmm. it's already come out. A uh, uh, jungle mission
1: mm-hmm.
2: is uh, fascinating. I'd never even heard of the book. It was a great example of a uh, of what we're talking about, and, and you know, the guy sent it in. I think it was about fifteen minutes after I put the call out there. He sent in this example, and it was great. You know, to, to have that, and it and you know worked with it a little bit, and it's already out there. And I think it's it's one that that people are already interested in.
1: And it's and that. it's a memoir of a French uh, officer, or is it? A, or it's a study of French policy. It's a memoir Indo-China. of a French officer of talking of French
2: about officer. being in, in uh, French Indochina and mm-hmm. in, in the, their their part of the uh, Vietnam War, the Vietnam conflict, and, and right. talking about that. And it and it provides a sort of different. And, and the author did a great job. Nathan Moore did a great job of talking about how this runs contrary to a lot of the ways we look at mm-hmm. people kind of going native, uh, you know, or, or or sort of becoming part of the. When they're trying to do these security force assistance type missions, mm-hmm. you know, to to help build up militaries in, in foreign lands, about the way that, you know, not everybody goes crazy and goes all full Mar- Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, you know, and 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 uh, goes crazy, and, and they're actually somebody who can be uh, that it can actually be a really useful aspect of doing those types of missions, of of engaging with the people mm-hmm. and doing it in a serious way. I mean, I think we see this a lot. You could do this with. Uh, people who do sort of British—you uh, do a lot of British memoirs, British Empire stuff. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of interesting things. We've we've kind of giant. We've done a giant hand wave of almost all of the you know, pre—I don't know—two thousand for us now uh, aspects of these people doing this. And we dismissed it all as Orientalism. These mm-hmm. you know, people are sort of treating these uh, foreign people as as lesser people. And you know, you go back and look, and a lot of these guys are actually very astute students of of the of the near east and they primarily in the british case but the stuff they have to say is really interesting there's there's, there's things that they say that uh that kind of uh, blow your mind about how engaged they were we like to think that we've got a much better mm-hmm. understanding of of these foreign places uh, than they did back then but yeah you know, sometimes you know they, they they maybe knew had some insights that we haven't even we've thought of or we've too blithely dismissed.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and and this gets to a, to a bigger question and, and and John, I do want to turn to you, especially since uh, you're, you're in the process of uh, making knowledge as a PhD candidate. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious in the social sciences these days, there's a lot of talk about how books are less significant than articles, both in terms of what people are producing and in what people are reading. Um, how would you appeal not just sort of to, to uh, somebody in your position, somebody who's who's trying to understand the field? Is there value in going back and reading older books? Oh,
0: for as a historian, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. I, my advisor, uh, Mark Milner, went over this uh, time and time again early on. In as a historian, looking at footnotes, mm-hmm. right? The newer, newer material, they they cite. Previous works and previous works, and and it, sadly, a lot of times it gets to be shorthand, where they haven't, they clearly haven't gone back and looked at the totality of what was written. And I'm not talking about plagiarism. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about, you alluded to the one one sentence summary, right? (laughs) Right, right. right. So you get a few bumper stickers, and 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 that's not meant to be um, a barb at anyone. It just shows the utility in working your way back through the older books to see what is um, is useful. Again, where I'm looking at the Pacific War in World War II, mm-hmm. looking at uh, the strategy, the naval logistics, and the operations, you can see right where that goes back to what I was talking about with Mahan and Corbett because, it, it again, it, it's a system, but... You can't get that until you work your way back through the past materials. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, Ta- and I would say, yeah.
2: well, the other thing I'd add to that is uh, we're not limiting ourselves to books on this either. Good, all right. You know, in some cases it could be uh, old articles uh, that used to be highly influential. So uh, I think I, I mentioned in the in the introductory article about it. Uh, C. Van Woodward's book, "The Age of Reinterpretation," mm-hmm. uh, has been. Used a lot just to sort of pirate out a, you know, a single line where he talks about the Americans had this era of free security, you know, mm-hmm. where the oceans, where the the Atlantic and the Pacific provided the United States with these buffers and allowed us to to not spend that much on security uh, to keep a small a small army and at times a very small navy, but uh, that that era had ended. Well, the, the, that that article is about a whole lot more than just that, and it's definitely and 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 why that the change, the end of the era of free security changes the way that we have to interpret everything. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd even to make the case, you, you could say that Woodward was wrong, that there was never free security for the United States, and that's kind of a mistake, and we shouldn't be operating under that under that illusion. So that's an example, I think, uh, one that we had to know very well when I was in grad school was William Luckenburg's um, Analog of War, about mm-hmm. how the New Deal uh, w- used this you know, the, the terminology, the metaphor of war to describe how it was fighting the Depression. Uh, and, and how important that book was you know and you see this intersection of military and, and political affairs uh, the way that we talk about stuff now i mean you could see this and obviously this is obvious to everybody now but you know we have a you know war on poverty war on drugs all of these things and using that terminology kind of comes out of world war one mm-hmm. uh, you know mm-hmm. where, you, uh, where you mobilize the society a lot more and how that changes the way we look at stuff so, so you know so william luchtenberg's article is a really interesting one and it's kind of buried in a couple of places in a, it's in an edited collection a couple of edited collections if you want to go find it but it was one that we had to know kind of backward and forward and, and i don't see a lot of people talking about it and it's an interesting one that mm-hmm. i think would be great to talk about some more
1: <clears throat> if uh, anybody's out there listening and wants to talk about william luchtenberg and the concept of war and the new deal right uh, yeah, there, contact yeah, talk to tom Brash. there
2: you go i i i Ruthlessly pirated that uh, <laughs> title to make it, that to say that that in World War II, interestingly, sorry, I flipped it around and wrote an article called "The Analog of Work," mm-hmm. which talked about how World War II soldiers coming out of the Depression, you know, talked about war in terms of of a job to finish, a job right. to do, which was not necessarily the terminology people use in the past. And this has great impacts on how we fo- how we uh, do things today. You know, we talk about how do you motivate soldiers. You know, do they talk about causes? And you know, ever since, really. World War One Americans American soldiers have been wary about talking about causes and mm-hmm. wars yeah, right. and talking in large terms about how we're fighting for the this has kind of come back in recent years, uh, but but nothing like what it used to be when you go back to like the Civil War and these guys talking about you know fighting for this experiment of liberty, fighting for the country yeah. and the, the, these things. So I think that's a that's another one that's that's interesting that all those intersections that all comes out from just reading you know a single article and having to that? understand it for the for the. To understand the historiography of
0: the new deal.
1: Sure. John, you got something there in front of you that, uh, looks kind of interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, Tom had mentioned uh, looking at other sources mm-hmm. and, um, like a lot of us, uh, after nine 11 and fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we had a lot of learning to do and, mm-hmm. and going back and looking at the irregular warfare history. And, um, I had, uh, to work on doctrine counterinsurgency doctrine in those days and uh i went back to some of the old classics there uh, war in the shadows and mm-hmm. and, and every just walking my way, way through the history but um, one in particular that stood out that's a little bit different kind of source was uh, uh, rand did a uh, counterinsurgency symposium in 1962 and it really had uh, a whole host of interesting characters to include. Galula was there, Kitson Mm -hmm. was there, Lansdale was there, and they posed several um, rather uh, pointed questions Mm -hmm. and uh, got some uh, really interesting um, answers to those questions, and it was tremendously useful for... I think anyone studying irregular warfare, but as someone trying to write doctrine about specifically counterinsurgency at the time, so that's just another example of of good sources that we can take a look at and, and contextualize. But figure out uh, are these useful to us today? Mm-hmm. Are, you know, how can we draw lessons from them? What do we have to be careful about? Right.
2: So I would say this this falls into another category of of contributions we're looking for, which is underrated. Mm-hmm. You know so not just for, not just forgotten books, books that used to be classics that everybody talked about, or readings that used to be classic that everybody talked about, but it's also just the, the ones that never got the, the love they should have in the first place. And so that's a, that's a good one. I know you, you had mentioned another one, uh, Bernard Fall, that you were talking
0: about. Right, and uh, that one in particular, um, when people were studying uh, counterinsurgency in those days, "Street Without Joy" is, is one that's 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 well known and 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 quite useful. Uh, but like uh, Mahan and Corbett and others, uh, Fall wrote a whole series of mm-hmm. books on on Vietnam, and uh, I like uh, "Reflections on War." Um, one of those that was. Uh, published after the fact, and uh, was a series of other articles or essays, um, but some of those contained some uh, very informative ideas uh, for your study of, of, of the topic, um, kind of not unlike uh, Kaufman's book uh, as well. Yeah, so in Battle yeah.
2: Pass is a collection of his essays. Uh, Matt Kaufman, Edward M. Kaufman's book. Hey, we were talking about this, this too. I mean, so, and, and again, to sort of to prompt this in our potential contributors out there and people coming in, I I would say, think of it this way. Sometimes, and we've all, we all have this experience. Anytime you write a a book, a dissertation, even articles, a lot of times you have an an argument you're trying to make. And along the way, uh, almost inevitably you have a panic attack halfway through when you, you find some title and you go, Oh wow, this is already making this already made the argument that I want to make. Uh, in this, you know, maybe I should just throw away what I'm getting ready to do. But usually, the case with those is that they're insightful in some other way. Mm-hmm. They're not exactly aligned with what you're trying to say, uh, but they're, they're they're amazing sources that that no one had looked at. And I think I mentioned uh, in the uh, in the essay about uh, John Macaulay Palmer's book. Uh, it's Washington, Lincoln, and Wilson: Three War Statesmen. And that's not really what the book's about. But it, but it's it's much more about. The development of American military policy, especially in relation to how you deal with uh, raising a large raising a large army how the united states the, the, the historical problem the classic problem is what do you do in the event that we were going to keep a small a small army we don't want large standing armies we, we still have a hostility to that uh, in a lot of ways uh, sort of manifest now in the fact that we can't you know we can't have a general staff an mm-hmm. overall general staff you know our 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 joint chiefs of staff is not. A general staff in the way that we normally think of it and he's talking but he's talking about how do you raise armies uh and the different arguments about it and what washington actually meant by a a well-regulated militia and he and he goes in and pulls out this document and the book is amazing for the stuff that it comes into and he touches a whole bunch of arguments that i think i mean i can't believe that people haven't read this book and 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 studied it and thought about it because it's such an interesting one and and you know and if you think that john Macaulay palmer is not important he is the guy who who writes the, uh, what, the National Security Act, is it, of 1916? He's one of the primary authors uh, of the of, of those acts, the National Security, is that what it's called, National Defense Act? Uh,
1: so did he then, so is this after his experience in the First World War, he, he decides to contextualize the work that he did by looking at uh, Lincoln and Washington as previous it, presidents? For
2: him, it's part of a whole series of, of writings he did mm-hmm. uh, about, this issue. So, so he's sort of pre World War One, and then the way they revised it in 1920, the national, the, mm-hmm. the national, De- I think it's national, I can't remember, if it's National Defense Act, National Security Act. Uh, we you know we use our names, different names for these things, but the way he talks about how, how they, how that informed his activities mm-hmm. and that throughout. But he's he's not necessarily using it to make his to make that case, and to some degree he is. Yes, he is justifying what you know the approach that that they take, uh, but he's also. He also, along the way, touches on a whole bunch of other activities, including you know something for me i think, you know, an observation that I think is really interesting in that in that book, which I won't necessarily think of, which is that um by historical accident, the Battle of Antietam happens I think it's like eighteen months into the American Civil War, and it's you know this this great example of a chance to for the north to to maybe win the war outright by defeating the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, and they're not able to. And he says one of the reasons why they're not able to, he points out, is because of sort of poor staff work, poor systems of how to how to how to run a large field army that that McClellan suffers with, uh, suffers with even with the improvements he made to the uh, Army of the Potomac. And then he points out that the the Meuse Argonne campaign starts off almost exactly eighteen months after the Americans enter the war. Mm. And the big difference is, oh. and he and he makes this point is that the war ends you know, forty days later.
1: Because they because they had better staff work, because better preparation. Because they were able
2: to better do this stuff. And he talks about why they were better then. Mm-hmm. And you have this, it's an interesting, it's it's almost exactly the argument I'm making in the book about Misargon <laughs> I'm writing right now. Um, so maybe don't read uh, Palmer's books, just wait for mine. But you, you, you get the idea of what, what we're talking about. Right. That, you know, But he has he's a lot of uh, other wide-ranging issues that are in that book. And it's amazing what he covers and that has kind of been forgotten. And I think that that's so underrated books are something that really useful, those ones you find along the way and go, oh, man. I you know, I I wish I had known about this first, mm-hmm. as opposed to as opposed to having to dig through like John said, you're digging through footnotes and you go back and back and back and, and one of those things that happens with footnotes too, I think, is that you know, the footnote that initially would have had seven titles in it, you know, it, you, it you start cutting off one. you start cutting off those first couple, right. the older ones, you're like, Yeah, they've been passed by and then you you lose something along the way. Especially because you know, back in the day, you know there was great value in how they put together books based on newspapers mm-hmm. and where mm-hmm. we don't as much now right. uh, mm-hmm. and, and so we lose something there because right. we're not we're not going through the New York Times a, as exhaustively as they did back in the day. So things like sure. that.
1: So overrated, underrated, forgotten or too well-remembered, or imperfectly-remembered, right? Any number of these kind of texts can be candidates for discussion on the dusty shelves.
2: Right, and then there's a a couple of others that I want to throw in there. One, it would be things that you found, that people have found to be really, really useful for teaching. Ah. Uh, You know, so sometimes, you know, there's just books that are, and I mentioned, I think, you know, Walter McDougall, Promised Land Crusader State, which isn't that old of a book. It's not that dusty of one, but it is one that I think is... Amazing for getting people to think about American foreign policy traditions and the sort of continuities and 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 discontinuities in American foreign policy. So that was one example there. So that that there's that one. And then uh, the sort of final category is documents. So we go back mm-hmm. to the original dusty shelves mm-hmm. thing, which is so stuff like uh, we talked about uh, forgotten speeches that that mm-hmm. military leaders or political leaders used back in the past uh, that, that that were interesting. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman's talk at the opening of of the uh, what became the Command and General Staff College is a really interesting one. It talks a lot about sort of approaches to how you teach military officers, how you develop uh, military officers. Uh, we're talking, we're working right now on a cartoon. We're going to have a podcast right. about a, a cartoon that we, that, that got sent around the other day. Uh, that That's you know, just a political cartoon. It was an interesting one that has George C. Marshall and, and Douglas MacArthur in it. And we're going to talk about that one later. But so anything like that, those those kinds of things are what we're
1: talking about. Great. Well, uh, so dusty shelves from the War Room. If you are interested in contributing, uh, please contact our two guests today, Dr. Tom Priscino, Colonel John Klug. Uh, even if you're not contributing, uh, please check out the War Room so that you can see the latest additions to the dusty shelves. But uh, that should get us, uh, get people going for today. So thanks a lot for joining us today, Tom and John. And thanks to all of you for joining us for this. Uh, edition of A Better piece. the name that we're going to keep for the time being, whether Tom <laughs> Braschino likes it or not. But uh, please tune in next time. But until next time, for The War Room the U.S. Army War College, I'm Ron Granary. Thanks for
0: joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, The War Room Podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.